I'm gone one week and the place is gone to the birds. <laughs> it's pretty cool, actually. So uh, in your bulletin this morning, you probably saw this, but there is the uh, That'll Preach series. There are the three options that you, we're asking you to vote on this morning. So at some point, if you would, uh, if the sermon turns out to be a snooze, you can still fo- focus on this. And uh, I'm not saying it will, but... So uh, one of these three options, and um, the middle one is... Uh, let me just say, the, the three are this. Should I be converting a Muslim or Jew or anyone from another religion? Why? How do I explain the differences in our beliefs? The second one, uh, we hear lots about understanding historical context when reading or using Bible verses, but does God expect us all to be biblical scholars? Why would he make his word difficult to interpret accurately? And the last one is about spiritual warfare. What is it, and how do we get equipped? And these are just three of uh, 20 or more that we receive from you. By the way, thank you for submitting those. They were all good, and uh, you'll have an opportunity to vote on all of them, I think, that were uh, presented to us. Um, so, uh, And some of these, even if you pick one of these, it doesn't mean that uh, one or the other won't still show up again in future weeks. So uh, pick one of these, just one. And uh, that's what you'll hear preached next Sunday, God willing. So have fun with that. I will. So um, <clears throat> I want to thank you for uh, I want to thank you for your cards and your texts and your love and prayers and support for me uh, with the passing of my mother. Um, my youngest brother, who's a pastor, and I officiated at my mom's funeral uh, last Monday. As you can imagine, that was difficult. Um, but everything went well, and it was a beautiful day. And as often happens, you know, when there's a loss in a family, uh, extended family comes together, and it's the blessing is being together with, you know, with family and friends, some who maybe you haven't seen in years. And it really was a great blessing. After the uh, funeral luncheon, which was at a local restaurant, we had a room reserved there. And after the luncheon, after most of the family and friends had left, my Brothers and I and their wives went out to a garden behind the uh, restaurant and for pictures. And after we were done with the pictures, just the uh, five of us met to take care of some business. And as we were walking back from the garden back to the parking lot, for me, that was like the most poignant moment in the morning. I felt such a deep love and pride to be part of this band of brothers Uh, We're not perfect, our parents weren't perfect, but they raised five remarkable men. Okay, four. Um, (laughs) No, I'm going to say five, because that would just be false humility. They raised five (laughs) remarkable men, and uh, my parents have reason to be proud uh, of their sons. So, Pride is uh, one of the things we're talking about this morning, it's our last focus of our series on vices and the virtue of humility. Um, not all pride is bad, is it? I mean, uh, you know, my parents taking pride. We, our young people who are graduating, we, we affirm, we take pride in their accomplishments. Uh, even the Apostle Paul in, in the book of Second uh, Corinthians, he writes these words. He, he says, um, I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. And so there's a, there's a kind of pride that is good and right. But there's also a kind of pride that is more about puffing oneself up, and ultimately it's a kind of, can be a, a loathsome and destructive um, attitude or words or actions. 
Pride is the last of the seven deadly sins that we're going to focus or reflect on, as well as, as I said, the virtue of humility. And our scripture this morning is Luke chapter 9. I invite you to go there if you'd like with me. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 46. It's on page 1005 in the Pew Bible. Jesus, as you may recall, um, addressed or confronted pride in the, in the Pharisees, the religious leaders that often showed itself in arrogance as well as in sometimes false humility, but he also uh, addressed destructive and sinful pride in his own disciples. And uh, that's our scripture this morning. It's one of those occasions that he addresses those prideful attitudes. As you listen, ask yourself, ask yourself this question, where does pride rear its ugly head in your own life? Okay? So I'm reading from Luke chapter 9, verse 46. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest." Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. There are really two uh, examples of pride in this passage. Uh, One may seem a bit more apparent than the other. Uh, There's the pride that comes from thinking that you are better than others, superior in some way, and then there's a kind of religious pride that also is evidenced here, a kind of arrogance where you think that you have a corner on the truth or that you are right or, you're, or, or, you have the, um, or, that, or that others are wrong and that you are connected to God and others are not. C.S. Lewis said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And I think the implication is to put things in perspective. What's above you? God, who is the ultimate truth and and greatness. We have no business comparing ourselves to each other, especially in ways that make us think that we are somehow better. Who am I or you to be looking down on anyone? Samuel Johnson said, pride is a vice which itself inclines every man to find in others and to overlook in himself. Pride is the most egregious of the seven deadly sins. It is the favorite sin of the narcissist. You often hear it expressed in thoughts or words that go something like this. Uh, I am totally better than everyone else. No one beat me. I have way more talent, money, or whatever than fill in the blank. No one needs to tell me how great I am. I already know it. Truly great people, truly great people have no need to regularly remind us of their greatness and superiority to everyone else. They are humble, unassuming, and gracious. They are servant leaders. They tend to unite people rather than polarize them. And one of the most well-known examples of the danger of, of pride comes in the story of the Old Testament, the King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Babylonian sovereign who, who uh, took great pride in his wealth and his accomplishments without acknowledging God, puffed himself up, and in the end, it turned to madness. He was humbled to the point of living like a beast in the field, eating grass, 
bowed so low or brought so low to the ground that all he could do was look up. And when he looked up finally and gave thanks to God, his sanity was restored to him. Pride is the deadliest of the seven sins. It is the original sin leading to the fall of man. The arrogant pride of our first parents was not just their disobedience to God, but their desire to be like God, really to be independent of God, to live apart from God. That was, the, that was, their, that was how pride evidenced itself in them. And to think or say or even act like you don't need God is pride. It is also foolishness. Pride was the source of the original sin. Pride is essentially believing that you are better than other people, perhaps better than God, thinking that you don't even need God, and that ultimately is madness. The middle-aged writers, writer and moral philosopher Dante portrayed prideful people in hell as carrying heavy stones to make them bow closer to the earth, to make them grounded. Some of the pictures from, from Dante is, is uh, pictures of, of people stooped over with huge boulders on their backs. It keeps them humble and bowed and close to the ground or grounded, if you will. And the opposite of pride is humility. It is to bring yourself low or to be brought low. Humility is a virtue, though not one that is highly prized in our current culture. It's better to humble oneself than to be humbled. In the book of Proverbs, which is, says quite a bit actually about pride and wisdom, the book of Proverbs, wisdom says, I hate pride and arrogance. It warns that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And Proverbs says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. God is often in the business of lifting up, exalting those who are already humbled or broken. And God is in the business as well of humbling the proud. There's a little song or ditty that I remember from my childhood by Mac Davis. You, may, you maybe remember the refrain to the song, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. At the heart of the gospel is humility. At the heart of the gospel is humility. It's found in the incarnation, God becoming man, Jesus Christ becoming one of us. This is the opposite of pride. God was not too good to become one of us, to be one with us. God was not too good to be born of poor parents in a cattle stall. God was not too proud to walk wherever he needed to go or to seek help from, and kindness from strangers. God was not too proud or busy that he didn't have time to listen and respond to the needs of those around him, including children and infants. God was not so proud as to avoid injustice, rejection, suffering, or even death. In fact, the Bible says that we are to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself in every way imaginable, including death on a cross. And because he humbled himself, because Jesus 
humbled himself, the Father exalted him, lifted him, up, lifted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But that exaltation of Jesus, the lifting up, the exalting, came only after he humbled himself. There wasn't an ounce of sinful pride in Jesus, who, by the way, had every reason in heaven and on earth to be proud. I mean, just look at his first miracle alone, turning water into wine. Yeah, who can do that? Jesus can. And it was the finest of wines, not some cheap swill. The irony of Jesus' disciples arguing among themselves about which of them is the greatest was that they were in the presence of true greatness. And yet they seem to lack the presence of mind to have humility about it. Jesus did not pick the A-team. These 12 guys were not the best and the brightest. They were the B-team. They were fishermen and tax collectors. They had flunked out of Hebrew school. They didn't have what it took, what it, what it takes to become a rabbi, but even though they were willing to follow in the dust of a rabbi, they were Jews, despised by the Romans. They weren't even liked by their fellow countrymen because they were country bumpkins. They were from the region of Galilee. They spoke, they spoke Aramaic. They didn't have a very good grasp of the language of the day, which was Koine Greek. Even John, one of the apostles who wrote the Gospel of John, which is a masterpiece, but in terms of vocabulary and literary style, the Gospel of John is written on the level of a sixth grade education. They demonstrated again and again their slowness to believe or understand the teachings and ways of Jesus. And for Jesus' disciples to get in arguments about which of them is the greatest was laughable. Are you kidding? Who are you kidding? But let's not be too hard on them before we look in the mirror ourselves. It was pride rearing its ugly head that Jesus checked in them. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't cite himself as an example of true greatness. He doesn't interrupt their petty arguments with each other by saying, hey, guys, 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 stop arguing. Let me just settle the argument right now. Look at me. Look how great I am. Look how awesome I am. Glory be to me. It's not what Jesus did. Jesus doesn't claim that his throne is the biggest, his army is the most powerful. He doesn't beat his chest and, and talk about how tough he is. He doesn't banter about his off-the-charts IQ. He doesn't remind them that no one can do the kind of miracles he does. No, Jesus simply takes a child, brings him to his side. And Jesus says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. I should have thought to bring a little child up here. A June bug, a Thea, an Asher. Laney, any, any of the little children that run around here. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever is least among you all, he is the greatest. He or she is the greatest. God is found in the weak, the humble, the least, the last, and the lost. Think of the person or people who you view as less than. And don't be so quick to say, no, I don't think that way. I, I, I think of everybody the same. No, you don't. None of us do. 
When's the last time you were in a checkout at the grocery store and the person ahead of you was using a benefit card and you cast the judgment, didn't you? You think, why doesn't that person get a job? You assume they're not working. You, you assume they're not a part of the working poor. And you think to yourself, I'm a hard worker. I pay my taxes. I'm a contributor. I'm a good citizen, a better citizen. Maybe, you, maybe, you, um, maybe it's the person you pass on the sidewalk who's speaking another language and whose skin color and culture is different than yours. And if you think about it, you begrudge the fact that they are changing the face of your town. Maybe it's the noisy child who's disrupting your worship this morning, who's fidgeting and restless, and you're completely missing the fact that it's Jesus. Maybe it's the person whose political perspective is different than yours, but you assume that your position is the enlightened one or the compassionate one or the moral one, and everyone else is wrong. Maybe it's a classmate who is shunned by everyone else, and you don't want to be seen with that person or befriend them because that will change how people regard you. Pride rears its ugly head in countless ways. What if we saw the other, including the least among us, as a 10, as important and valuable, even divine? We are reminded by C.S. Lewis that there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And, they are there, and their life is to yours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And Lewis goes on to say that next to the blessed sacrament, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, which if you have a high view of the Lord's Supper and you believe that Christ is truly present in the breaking of that bread and the, the taking of that cup, holiest thing presented to our senses, Lewis says next to the blessed sacrament... Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way, for in him also Christ truly dwells. The glorifier and the glorified, glory himself is truly hidden. If we saw ourselves, if we saw others, all others, not as ordinary but extraordinary and destined for glory, would we not banish pride and be more humble with each other? in the presence of one another, in the way that we speak or regard the other? Jesus understood this. Jesus, who is the clearest revelation of God, who is God in flesh, the maker of heaven and earth, the only one whose love is unending, whose wisdom is beyond comprehension, whose power can raise the dead, whose holiness is perfect, whose beauty is transcendent, whose glory is complete, takes a little child and says, welcome this one as you would welcome me. Recognize the greatness of this little one. You know, politicians love photo ops with babies, right? Because it bolsters their image, not because they like drooling infants who spit up on them. In a culture that treated women and children as property, Jesus has the audacity to suggest that welcoming this little child is the same thing as welcoming Jesus himself and welcoming the creator of heaven and earth. 
Jesus' point is that this little child, weak and small and vulnerable, incomplete in knowledge and understanding, is in some way an incarnation of the divine. You know, if we actually believed the words of Jesus, there would be a waiting list to serve in the nursery and in children's ministry. I want to be with Jesus. <laughs> I want to be where Jesus is. I want to serve Jesus. Treating this, this child as greater than yourself is true greatness. And think how radical that was in the first century, and sadly, just as radical, I think, in the 21st century. How slow we are to learn. I want to just say one last, a brief word, I guess, about the religious pride that's also exposed in this passage before us this morning. And I, and I have a sense that, you know, Jesus has called the disciples out on their arrogant pride, their petty argument with each other about which of them is the greatest. He gives them the little object lesson of the child, and I think before his words even sink in, before they have time to even allow it to, to seep in and, and percolate and apply it to the rest of their life, John says, oh, by the way, Jesus... We saw someone doing miracles in your name, and we told him to stop, because he's not one of us. Apparently, there were others, like Jesus and his disciples, who were going around doing miracles, ushering in the kingdom of God, and, uh, but they weren't among the 12, or perhaps even among the 70. We don't know anything about them, except that they, too, were making the name of Jesus known. And Jesus rebuked the disciples for attempting to stop them. Do not stop them, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. They're not your enemies. They aren't the enemies of faith that you make them out to be. It is pride that pits Christians against one another, that fosters attitudes of being superior or right or orthodox or whatever other distinguishing term that you want to use that indicates superiority and separateness. I went to church last Sunday in Wisconsin with one of my brothers who lives there, my youngest brother and I were staying with he and his wife, and so we went to church with him last Sunday morning. And I'd been to this church a few times before. My youngest brother hadn't. As we're walking up to the church, my youngest brother says to me, so what denomination is this church? I told him, he goes, oh, the liberal ones. It was a judgment, and one that I've made myself many times. And I recognize it in him because I've seen it in myself. And the truth is, it's a good church with good people doing good ministry, and I celebrate that. And by the way, I have to check myself because I can walk into another church and think, oh, those conservative ones with the same kind of judgment and disdain. It is human nature for us to think that we are right, on the right side, associated with the right people, the right group, the right denomination, the right way of doing things, the right theology or doctrine and to think everyone else is wrong, misguided, or even evil. It's especially easy for us as Protestants to do this because it's in our DNA to protest. And we do it all too easily and quickly, splintering and dividing. Division is often the symptom of stubborn pride. Pride is destructive in relationships and in the church. It is only through humility and kindness that we are able to strive for unity to look for and celebrate the divine in each other. I'll close with this, Proverbs 13.10. Pride only breeds quarrels. Pride only breeds quarrels. It's true. In our world, our culture, and society, and sometimes even the church, is marked these days by so much division, unnecessary division, 
and polarization, and at the root of it often is ugly pride. I don't need you, and I have nothing to learn from you. I am sufficient in myself. It didn't work for our first parents. Why do we think that the same attitude is going to work for us? Humility is the path to pursue. As the psalmist says, with humility comes wisdom. Let's pray. God, forgive each of us for the arrogance and pride that lurks within us, God, that is toxic to our own souls and to those around us. God, expose it. Reveal it for what it is. And grant to us by your Spirit humility, humble hearts, and to recognize the divine in each other. And God, in the ways that we act and speak and even the attitudes of our hearts, God, that we would be spurring one another on toward glory and goodness. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.